Welcome to our session this afternoon. Uh, this is our conversation regarding trigger warnings. Um, I'm Hannah McGill and introduce our panel. With me here is Richard Warden, who many of you will know, who is the film lead for the Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Foundation. Um, we also have Jen McGregor. Jen is a theatre maker, writer and a director who has written very frankly and movingly, I think, about her own experiences with post-traumatic stress and, and triggering. And at the far end there we have Simon Stewart. Simon used to be a journalist in Scotland and has now taken up a new profession, arguably infinitely more useful profession, as a clinical psychologist. So welcome our panel. Thank you. Um, trigger warnings um, refer to the triggering of trauma and the idea that a piece of work, be that a, a video, a piece of writing, um, any, any piece of communication, can come with um, a warning as to its content and how it might trigger its audience. Um, many of you will be aware that this has become a controversial area in the sense that it tends to be a sort of uh, divisive area between people who consider themselves proponents of free speech and people who consider that a priority should be made of catering to sensitivities and making sure that people are are comfortable in the world. Um, it has, it, it's a conversation that gets very heated um, and one of the things that we might talk about is why exactly that is. Um, so I'm sure some of you will have things to say as well and we will come to the audience later on but I'd like to maybe start with, with Richard and talk about from a programming point of view. When you are programming films that very often will have content that is uh, intense for people, emotionally testing for people, might be distressing for people, um, and that's kind of part of programming a mental health film festival, I imagine. How do you approach the idea of warning people about content that might upset them? Well, this, this might seem like a cop-out here, but that's part of the reason that we're here today, and my colleague Andrew had mentioned that previously, is that we feel we don't know enough mm. about how to approach these, um, these situations. Um, the catalyst for this session came out of um, a jury meeting for our international film competition. We had a film in um, which was a winner, but in, in which um, suicide was very clearly contemplated. Mm -hmm. And this was not a reason not to give this film an award, but um, we do feel um, a, a duty of care in, in the context of the festival as challenging as, as that can be. So, I mean, it, I have to say that up to this point it has been, well, it's, uh, trigger warnings aren't an exact science to begin yeah. with, but, I mean, it, it has been ad hoc, it's been a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, it, it's, it's me, I, don't, I come to the festival apart from my own lived experience um, as a filmmaker, so I, I have the good fortune of, of consulting with my, my colleagues. I mean, what do you think? Take a look at this film. How should we approach it? But, um, but we do need to know more about this, our, our line that we've taken, we want to be brave about our programming, we want to um, prompt very um, um, engaging and sometimes challenging, difficult conversations. So we try to push as far as we can um, with being open to um, material that can be upsetting, perhaps, mm. you know, we, would, we like to think upsetting in a good way. Um, but um, we do, it may be fair to say that we're, we're a bit nervous. Mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're nervous from, I mean, we want to do, I mentioned duty of care again, there's this, from the ethical standpoint, to, to, to do the right thing. Um, but we're also um, wondering about um, the legalities, about if we take responsibility, if we mm -hmm. start to say, well, this film has this and this and this in it, 
what if we miss that? Yeah. What does that mean? And, and I've just seen very interesting examples of this kind of thing um, around different types of programming. Um, and I'll just finish with this. There's a, a film that we've been involved with um, for setting up post-screening discussion panels and the variety of ways in which the various venues, um, different chains, exhibition chains, have, have described this film. Some go into great detail about the potential triggering um, um, elements, uh, some say nothing at all. And what we decided to do in this case was not to say anything, mm. because it's not our gig. It, it, it's theirs, but within, it, within the context of the festival, um, we try to make intelligent, caring, compassionate decisions around what we say without overplaying and perhaps being triggering in our trigger warnings. Mm. I mean, I should say that the very term trigger warnings, some people use content warning on mm -hmm. the basis that the word trigger might be triggering. This is a very fraught area generally. Um, cinema might be an area in which most people are more familiar with the concept, even before we were aware of trigger warnings, content warnings as a thing. You would get those little bits of detail from, from the censor, which would be you know mild peril or strong bloody violence or scenes of a sexual nature or, or whatever it is. Um, Simon, from a, from a psychologist's point of view, is there a sort of firm basis, an agreement among psychology professionals of the effects of a trauma trigger on a general audience who are not necessarily people with declared mental health issues? I could probably begin by saying there's no agreement among psychologists about or any. wider mental health <laughs> professionals about anything <laughs> at all. Um, and hopefully never will be, this is how we, how we drive things forward. Um, no, and I think what Richard says there really sums up um, a lot of the, of the issues here. Um, even for people who have experienced trauma, and I suppose when, when I'm talking about trauma, um, I'm using that phrase very, very broadly, it could be a single traumatic event, um, a fire, a car crash, an assault. It could be what we call complex trauma, which is multiple, multiple repeated trauma over a prolonged period of time. Um, anyone who has experienced any kind of trauma can theoretically be triggered by anything whatsoever. There's somebody that I am currently working with in my, uh, my NHS work who found themselves experiencing a very intense flashback because they, they came across a certain type of outbuilding in a context they hadn't expected and went into that extreme fight-flight-freeze response. Now, because partly of the work that this person has been doing, they were able to recognize that, to, to get some perspective around this, but of course they were horrified by this. You know, how can a shed set me off like this? But that gives you an idea of, you know, for people who've experienced trauma, anything can set them off. For people who haven't experienced trauma, we get into a very, very interesting idea here about are we trying to do the right thing? Are we trying, you had a lovely phrase, Richard, about make things safe for people. Or are we being too overprotective? Again, life is unpredictable. And we know all the evidence suggests that if a child is growing up in a healthy and 
broadly well-attached, well-cared-for environment, then being able to safely take risks, the idea of safe uncertainty, is hugely, hugely important. So, again, if we go too far the other way and trigger warnings become, well, we'd we better not go anywhere near that just in case, that creates problems. All of which, I guess, is a very, very long-winded way of saying there is absolutely no clear answer to this. But the essential thing, I think, is that we are starting to discuss and we are starting to explore this. Mm -hmm. Jen, for you, as someone who has the experience of, of post-traumatic stress, you, you've written about how this kind of chimes with what Simon was saying there, that if the, if the triggers are unpredictable, then how can there be a blanket idea of what will, what will trigger everybody? Can you talk a little bit about your own experience with this? Yeah. Um, I was diagnosed with complex uh, PTSD uh, some years ago due to a series of rather miserable events uh, when I was younger and certainly it has been my experience that trauma triggers, the things that bring on the flashbacks and the nausea and the shaking and leave me temporarily incapacitated would be incredibly difficult to predict. But if I see things like content warnings for sexual content, violence, all that kind of thing, that's great and everything, but I doubt you're ever going to put on a content warning saying, be warned, the soundtrack for this film contains the Schubert Ave Maria. Mm -hmm. exactly. If it does, I'm going to have a problem. It's my problem. It's something that I feel is mine to deal with, and I don't really think I can be protected from that in any kind of useful way. The, it's very difficult to anticipate everybody, well, it's impossible to anticipate everybody's needs. Um, I do think the general content warnings have a great deal of use because there is a certain amount of commonality in people's experience. You know, an awful lot of people have encountered sexual violence or more standard violence and may feel the need to be warned about that. Things like car crashes, for example, that is another one. The car crash sounds I find quite difficult to deal with. Um, that's a fairly common one, so you could potentially warn people about that in a useful manner. But eventually it gets to the point where you, I feel like you'd have to have so many warnings about everything that could potentially affect anyone who might experience this art form ever that by the time you get to the end of the list of trigger warnings, have you not just given them the script? <laughs> In which case, they've been exposed to the art form and have presumably been triggered. Exactly. So I feel like it's possibly not as useful to focus on avoiding the triggers as on dealing with them when they happen. Mm. Having a, a healthy way of taking care of people should they be caught out by this. I also think it is very important to acknowledge that there's a difference between being made to feel uncomfortable and experiencing a PTSD trigger. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. being protected from negative emotions is, I think, potentially quite damaging. Um, but it's a difficult one to try and balance as an artist because, you know, again, I don't know. I don't know what might affect 
every single person in this room, how it might affect them, what might be simply a moment of feeling a negative emotion for one person might be something quite damaging for someone else mm. and might have no effect at all on yet another person. So it's, it is, as you say, a, an impossible thing to, to navigate your way through. Um, and it strikes me that the most, perhaps the most useful thing is developing a, a world in which people can express their emotions honestly, um, can deal with triggers as and when they come up, um, and where, and I know this is a controversial opinion and I'm very sorry if it upsets anyone, but where, where getting triggered is not kind of cool. Where, where there isn't that feeling of, you know, I can say that this triggers me and that will make me sound terribly deep and interesting, or mm. I can say that this triggers me and that will stop a conversation that I'm not comfortable with. Mm. Not because it actually does. It's one that irritates me somewhat as someone who does deal with the flashbacks and the nausea and all that kind of thing. To there, there are times when I do feel like I would like people to have just a little bit of respect mm. for that and realise that being made to feel bad is its own thing mm -hmm. and it's alright for it to be its own thing and it's alright to express that you don't want to be made to feel bad but it's a different thing to being triggered. To being triggered. I mean maybe this has partly become confused because probably the way in which trigger warnings came to the attention of a wider public was through the American higher education context where a lot of um, American colleges began to introduce trigger warnings for course content, particularly for literature and film students. And there remains, there, there is an ongoing sort of standoff between people who believe that your higher education should be a comfortable experience. It should you should feel safe. You should not feel traumatized by what you're what you're learning in class. And people who feel that by signing up for higher education, you say, I I put myself through this intellectually rigorous process, whatever it brings. And that I mean that that is complicated, and it it, it, it continues to be controversial. But what do you think about that, Richard, from the point of view of what we experience from art? Probably a lot of us would want to know if we were going to see something that had, say, very, very graphic violence. Let's just say that is something that most of us are probably wired to be upset by. Mm -hmm. Sure, there are people who are horror movie aficionados, but they, even they know that, that that is a sort of a particular position that people take. Um, for the, for we, if we want to know that something is going to distress us, is, can, do you know where we can draw a line between this has graphic content and this doesn't have graphic content? Mm, that's, the, that's the question, mm. isn't it? Um, my feeling on this at the moment is that we can only approach this through an attitude of um, openness, awareness, again, compassion, and try our best to anticipate. Mm. Um, so, I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a marked difference between, as I suggested previously, events that are branded as Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival events. Um, you know, the, we, we have outreach that means it's not just, just people that know us from before who have their own experience are going to come in, but knowing that a significant portion of our audience um, may become beyond uncomfortable to get to that, that more um, problematic space, 
um, means that we have to look, I think, as difficult and time-consuming as that is, to look at every single film and think about what should we be saying here. And maybe it's more about the, the milieu, the environment that we create, where it's, okay, we care. <laughs> we, clearly we do. We are genuinely trying our best to make um, informed and um, appropriate decisions around what we say. Um, we're not, we can't possibly get it right all the time. So we'll go that extra mile, maybe this is what I'm trying to get to, we'll, we'll, we'll go that extra mile that the British Board of Film Classification won't. We'll use those warnings and then maybe, and we have, throw an extra thing in here and there. Um, but I think that it's probably not going so far beyond those traditional warnings that mean that we become this festival of distress. <laughs> Fest of distress. That's something we don't want to be, but I mean, we're, we are um, wanting difficult again subject matter to be to be um, to be raised. Mm. Uh, one other, just brief thing I'll say is that perhaps where we best address this issue, in a sense, is through our post-screening discussions. Yeah. That um, I mean, we can't possibly get it right as, as we're, we're, we're um, reiterating up here um, in every single situation for every single film. But if we have a discussion after every single film, which is something that we try to do, then we are creating that space where people can voice concern, where we can learn from the audience as much as, as, as we're um, giving our own opinions or having a panel give, give their opinions of things. And we're not just uh, sending people off into the night after having raised very difficult um, material. Mm -hmm. um, Simon, what about the idea that people often bring up in this area, which is that it's actually the 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 inverse can be seen as true, that actually if you are traumatised, then exposing yourself to the source of trauma can help. Is that...? Absolutely. Um, this is the essential aspect of any treatment for trauma, is exposure therapy. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm fond of saying that, really, as psychologists, we fundamentally only do two things. We activate, so we try to get people doing more of what is intrinsically rewarding, and we expose. We, mm. we try to, I suppose, what's the best way of explaining it? What we're trying to do is increase people's available behavioural repertoire in the presence of distress. So instead of, I can't stand this, I have to run and hide, I have to get away, we can say, okay, this is incredibly awful, but maybe I can stay here if this is helping me pursue what matters. So the core, the absolute fundament of that is exposure. Mm -hmm. But of course, this is, as with everything, um, there, there are layers and layers within this. Mm. The classic sort of training example with, um, with junior mental health practitioners is a spider phobia. Mm -hmm. you know, it's a fairly benign thing. People can usually get through life with a fairly... I, I know psychologists with spider phobias, um, <laughs> which always surprises me. But anyway... Um, but, you know, you would begin by, you know, maybe saying, look at some pictures of spiders, a big fluffy spider, toy spider, then you would gradually expose, and you would work up to actually being in a room with real-life spiders, spiders crawling all over your hands. But that's gradual. Yeah, it would take place over something like that, maybe four or five or six sessions. If you extrapolate that out, so you work through a more significant trauma, um, you run into all sorts of very, very interesting things. If what someone has experienced is, say, a car crash, which feels like a fairly safe example to use, 
Well, you can't go and expose somebody to a car crash. You can expose them to certain aspects around that, sounds, videos, and so on. Maybe if they're very avoidant of being in a car, you would be working towards that. But again, you would be working with the person. What do you want from this? Where, where, do, we, where do you want to be taken? Again, I, I, worked some, I worked once with somebody who had a very unusual phobia. And we did lots of exposure work, and it wasn't really working. And we realized that part, of the, that part of the reason was that this phobia was not getting in the way of his life at all. It was so easy for him to avoid this particular stimulus. What actually was happening, though, was a massive sense of shame and self-doubt that he was weak for having this phobia. And in the end, that was what we fairly successfully managed to address. By the time you get into incredibly complex trauma, and you get into people who have experienced multiple, multiple things that have had such a profound effect on their sense of self. Yes, the core is the same. You are hopefully trying to help people to expose to these intolerable feelings to the idea, as Jen says, that it is possible to maybe make a little more room for these feelings. But this is incredibly complex and incredibly specialist work. Yeah. And it cannot be done in a one You cannot flood that into yeah. people. So, yeah, we, again, we, we get into this interesting thing. It would, in certain contexts, perhaps be incredibly beneficial as part of someone's work towards recovering from what happened to them and becoming the person they want to be. It could be incredibly valuable to watch a certain film or listen to a certain piece of music, but that has to be done in a very careful way and it has to be done at the person's own speed mm. and taking them towards what they want. Yeah, and in the context of trigger warnings and the way that we're talking about them, that's not, that's not really what we're talking about, is it? We're talking about where you've paid to be entertained by something or you've just gone onto your Facebook page and you are confronted by something that is either really traumatic or just more upset than you feel like being. Yeah. And I mean, actually, again, um, I don't think I'm breaking any confidences here at all. Someone that I'm working with at the moment um, who had been warned by a number of their friends, do not watch this particular film. It will trigger you very badly. And she had said, okay, fine. She'd avoided it. She'd made a very deliberate decision that in that context, avoidance was the preferred option. And then somebody posted something, I think is still from that film, on Facebook, mm. which she didn't expect at all. Mm. And she found that tremendously distressing. Mm. But I think, interestingly, it appears she found it particularly distressing because she'd been trying so hard to avoid it mm. and had been doing so su yeah. quite successfully. So again, it, it is this idea that because that was contextualized as, you have to avoid this particular thing, yeah. when suddenly, through nobody's fault, it appears, that felt even more distressing and even more intolerable. Mm -hmm. I think then, as, as Jen said, the, the core piece of work there is how can, we, how can we start to make room for the fact that maybe this is going to happen? How, rather than changing the antecedent, changing the stimulus, how can we try to equip you with a more flexible set of behaviours that lead to a more desired consequence? Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the general run of people aren't in therapy either because they don't need to be or because they can't afford it or it just hasn't been part of their life. So if we're talking in the, in the, the casual run of people in everyday life, is there anything inherently wrong with the idea that we try to make the world a gentler place for people? That's it, in a nutshell. That's everything. I mean, sorry. No, I, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think, again, um, you know, as, 
as a psychologist, I'm keenly aware of the fact that everything becomes very psychocentric and everything comes mm. back. It's a little bit touches on the conversation we were having before this began. Where does, where does it become an individual, about the individual working with what's happened to them? And where does it become about the wider context and what society does? And I think we as professionals are very guilty of assuming that everybody can somehow adapt, everyone can recover. A huge, huge part of what I'm trying to do as a psychologist is to say, no, society has function here, but you used that word before, Richard, compassion, and that is absolutely key. One of my, um, one of my former shooters described psychology as trying to build a science of compassion. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way of looking at it. We have an enormously long way to go, but that's, that's the holy grail. Mm -hmm. I would just say with regards to making things gentler and more compassionate, um, just to complicate that, <laughs> uh, it is quite possible to find your triggers within things that are gentle and compassionate. And mm. um, I've written before about um, an experience that I had some years ago, um, going to see a very beautiful and very gentle piece of children's theatre. And it was one of the most triggering experiences mm. I've ever had, in a way that they could never have anticipated. Um, Due to some events surrounding the death of my mother, I really don't get on well with the smell of lavender, um, which is, in this day and age, a reasonably easy one to avoid as long as you check your detergent when you pick it up in the supermarket. You can avoid lavender on the whole, and it's fine. You never know when you're going to find yourself sitting next to usually an old lady on the bus wearing Yardley's lavender perfume. It happens. Um, and when that happens, I'm usually able to get myself out of the situation and move. So, a few fringes ago, I went to see The Man Who Planted Trees, which is an absolutely beautiful show that I would wholeheartedly recommend to anyone. And there's a moment where they're creating the image of a lavender field, and they take out these big fans and put a few drops of lavender oil on, and they waft the scent of lavender out over the audience. And it's an absolutely beautiful theatrical moment. And I'm scrabbling in my handbag as if a gas alarm has just gone off, trying to find the little bottle of albus oil that I carry around with me for just these eventualities, so that there's a different smell that will overpower the lavender. Because while it's an infrequent experience, it's a really horrible one, and it makes me feel sick, and it makes me curl up, and I have a very profound visceral response to it that makes me feel really, really embarrassed when it happens in front of other people, particularly because I am a theatre maker, so for me that is a professional environment. I'm trying to conduct myself like, you know, a sane, competent human being and not someone who will freak out for no apparent reason. And I think that that sums it up, doesn't it? This idea that part, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but part of what you're describing there isn't just the visceral reaction, which is horrible and you want to avoid, but it's the associated emotions. It's this sense of self-judgment of yeah. maybe you know, shame, perhaps, around why am, why am I responding like this? Yeah. It's that feeling in my head of, why can't I just be normal about this? Exactly. Everyone and else is okay with it, why aren't I? And of course, the wonderful thing here is that we're starting to explore that, no, people aren't okay with this. Lots of people are responding in lots of different ways. Huge numbers. You know, back when I was a journalist, um, I... 
I had, I, I'm, I'm faintly embarrassed by how little I understood about the prevalence of trauma and what mm. people had been through. So, normal is such a, an unhelpful word in so many ways. If we can start then, this is about turning it on its head, and if we can start as a society, coming back to what we were saying before, to say people may respond like that, how can we help? Yeah. To normalize your experience, that's normal. Not this idea that not experiencing this is normal. And if we can use that as the basis for moving forwards, then maybe maybe this, this comes back to this idea about a more compassionate milieu. Exactly, <laughs> because the, the ideal would be a situation where that reaction can be accommodated, maybe not in the moment, but afterwards, mm -hmm. that I had my ways of dealing yeah. with it, but, yes. the, you know... I'm not entirely sure what form that would take. That would be the Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival, yeah, yeah, in a sense, and that was what I was, I was going the, to say. Yeah. The, the big thing for me is that I, I wouldn't want that experience to be taken away from other people. I wouldn't even want it to be taken away from me. You know, I, I wouldn't have wanted to be told in advance that that was going to happen, partly because it would have destroyed the kind of coup de théâtre aspect, but also because I wouldn't have wanted to be put off of going to see the show. I have no regrets. I, I'm glad I went. But... <laughs> I wouldn't want that experience to be shut down yeah. in any way. Yeah. So maybe it's it's about the, um, to use that word, or, or derivative, the, the compassionate context mm -hmm. in which events take place and, and, and that, that allowance for um, a range of, of reactions to, to events. And I mean, when first working with the Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival, the context of... of reaching out to um, so many words we use, let's just say vulnerable audiences um, knowing that we are going to have perhaps you know, more than the average number of, of people, vulnerable people in the audience um, no exaggeration kept me up at night but, but what I've come to feel since and certainly this conversation is, is helping me in this regard is, is that um, although we are inevitably going to err, if we are creating a, a context in which we are allowing and, and open that at least that's something without hopefully going too far in the other direction that we're turning people off. In, 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 maybe it's, it's, I'm feeling lighter now. <laughs> the, 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 the burden of, 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 of being concerned about that audience, actually the context of the festival um, is extremely helpful. Mm. It's interesting what you said there, Simon, about um, being embarrassed about your lack of awareness when you were when you were younger and when you were being a journalist. I mean, something that strikes me is that I think we're, we're very often talking about life experience, that people who are making art and putting it out in the world are often quite young, are often doing things for effect, may not be aware of the weight of some of what they are handling. I mean, I think of this personally in the context of the use of pregnancy, uh, pregnancy loss, birth, miscarriage, abortion in movies because I had an experience of that some years back. Suddenly, we, I mean, I was a film critic, a full-time film critic at the time. Suddenly realised that almost every film had that as a plot point, and it was almost impossible for me to avoid it. And I got annoyed not because I wasn't being warned that I might be triggered, but by the fact that this is just thrown in casually as a sort of plot device, and that I felt as if there was a lack of of awareness of the, the, you know, playing with fire aspect. Yes. And maybe that applies to other kinds of trauma as well, that they get thrown in too casually to pieces of art without people realising the impact that it might be having. I, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, I, 
again, the question is, how do we deal with that? Is there a nice, simple, straightforward way of dealing with that? Well, no, because it comes back to that very sort of reductio ad absurdum idea that you know you would have this huge list of things that could or couldn't be talked about. Yeah. But the wider societal discussion about these things, that's where it becomes very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think this is something that we're really only just starting to talk about. Mm. I grew up when, you know, when I was young in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, I was a kind of second phase enormous Joy Division fan. So, you know, you're aware of this myth around Ian Curtis, the, the tragic frontman who hanged himself. And you don't really know what sense to make of that. And nobody talks about this. Mm -hmm. And then you start to read interviews with the band themselves and how little help they got and how little sense they made of it. Now, we, I suspect that would play out very differently. Yeah. It would hopefully play out in a more compassionate way. There would maybe be more discussion around that. And perhaps, perhaps... You know, there's a quote that always amuses me slightly about Joy Division. Well, you know, we didn't look at what he was writing the lyrics about, we just thought they were quite good. Look at the bloody lyrics! You know, that's really dark stuff. So if somebody is producing that, then maybe having that conversation for mentors, for programmers, for other people around them, for teachers, to be saying, this is interesting, you know, where's this coming from? What's this about? And if it's, oh, I just thought it'd be fun to have that conversation as part of training and to say, yeah. okay, but, and yet, and yet, and yet, without destroying the, the wonderful and beautiful art that, that can come from adversity. Something that, that you just said I think is really important, where is it coming from? And, and mm. an equivalent for me is, the spirit in which something is done. And certainly, you know, we receive a lot of material, I'm talking about, about film at the festival, but, but otherwise too, I'm sure, um, where um, these elements that, that you're referring to recently, Hannah, um, seem gratuitous. Yeah. I mean, you know it when you see it, it's about mental health, yeah. Mm. But, you know, so, so and, and again, we won't always get that right, but certainly one way that we try to judge what we will put in the festival, even though, you know, there's, difficult material, we may have to have trigger warnings there, is where is the filmmaker coming from? Yeah. We try our best yes. to, to ascertain yeah. that. Yeah. For you, Jen, does that translate into feeling that you should write only about things that you've experienced? Because that is something that comes up a lot in discussion these days about the responsibility of the artist, that, you know, not to appropriate other people's experience, or is that something that you feel strongly about? <laughs> It is, not in the sense of believing that people should only write about things that have happened to them directly, but believing that if, you're, if you are writing about someone else's experience, the onus is on you as the creator to handle that responsibly, mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, to make sure that you know your subject matter and know, know where to go deep and where to step back. Mm -hmm in a way, so I would say that you need, you need a great deal of awareness, mm -hmm. but you can, you can have that awareness and you can develop it without necessarily having to have the experience mm -hmm. yourself. Mm -hmm. I think then it, it comes down to the kind of the sensitivity and intelligence of the individual creator to, to guide them through it. Mm -hmm. Because I think it is very easy and I think most most artists of any kind do this early on. 
that you'll have at least one experience where you make a piece of work that it's about something you're very interested in but haven't really come to understand and you just kind of charge in there and create something that is actually quite awful and clunky and, and, and ham-fisted in the way it deals with things. God, I know I did, but, uh, <laughs> but hopefully you mature past that and you can look back at it and think, okay, that I could have handled that better, I didn't really understand this element, so if I deal with something that's not mine again, I'm going to do better. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting thing as well that comes up there about um, the way critics respond as well, because of course mm -hmm. a constructive and broadly compassionate critical review or appraisal is something that ideally an artist, I, I would imagine, would be able to learn from, work with, but of course that's, that's not necessarily what happens so much now. So just as we might be getting better about talking about things, of course now not only is everybody a critic, but everybody's a critic who can go on social media mm -hmm. straight away mm -hmm. and can say, well, you pick holes in things. Yeah. And I wonder what effect that might have in stifling somebody's ability to do what you're saying there mm -hmm. and to say, how can, I, how can I be more sensitive? How can I move forward? I think there's also a responsibility on all of us before we take to social media about things to control our own knee-jerk reactions. Yes. Because I know I quite often find, and obviously mental health is a huge topic in film and theatre at the moment, um, I quite often find that I go to see things and I come out and I feel really, really angry and I look at things and I go, well, that's not my experience at all. Mm -hmm. And I have to check myself and think, well, was it meant to be? Yeah. Yeah. And if it was, then yeah, legit, anger is fine, go right ahead, rant away. <laughs> Not like that, delete that, delete that, delete that. But, but sometimes it's a question of looking at things and going, well, actually, that wasn't meant to speak to me. Yeah. So or that person's fine. interpretation or experience is, is different. And yeah, I, and, I and, and like that, oh my God, having different life experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking as a critic, this has all got infinitely more complicated for me as I've got older and less sure of my own rightness mm. in all things. You know, you get, you get a little bit more complicated yourself and you just go, well, maybe I just don't get along with that particular mode of expression. Editors don't really like it when you do that, though. They tend to want the hatchet job or the praise or the star rating, and it's either good or it's bad, and, you know. Yeah. It's very difficult to write in an engaging and entertaining <laughs> way without coming to a definite opinion yeah. about something. I mean, I think that, that slightly nebulous but important thing that we were just talking about, about sort of authenticity, it's, it's subjective to some extent, but it's that thing that you sort of feel inside about this is either coming from a real place or it's yeah. not. I mean, you could completely disagree with another human being about it, but maybe the critic's job is just to try and locate that sense of whether they feel that something's authentic or not. But yeah, Twitter doesn't really facilitate that. <laughs> Let's talk to the audience. Um, if anybody would like to stick their hand up and ask a question or make a little comment. I don't know if there's a... Thank you. Thanks. I, I found the panel discussion quite interesting. Just wanted to raise a number of points, really. Um, I wanted to talk about the portrayal. So we've mentioned a lot of things regarding mental health, but there are also other issues that people are quite sensitive to. So, for example, I'm very sensitive to how racism is addressed in the media. So I would watch a film like Django and be extremely annoyed because I think sometimes Quentin Tarantino, particularly when he's using the N-word, uses it in a very distasteful way. Mm -hmm. But then 
at the same time, I'll be able to watch 12 years as a slave and be all right with that. And I don't know if that has to do with the ethnicity of the person doing it. And maybe I feel he's coming from an angle where I understand it. So, that, so that's one point. The second point I wanted to bring up was the issue of how do you deal with the contagion effect. So we can think about the issue of the bridge end suicides. And I'm really interested to know how that would be portrayed today with the advent of social media, with movies, and how is that being addressed now? And I guess the third point, sorry, this is my last point. Because um, if I don't get them off my chest, I'll sure. forget it. And the third point I want to discuss is music. Music is very interesting. I'm a, a hip-hop fan. And with hip-hop, it's often been very graphic and in your face. So I guess with hip-hop, hip-hop has always addressed mental issues head-on. But then if you listen to... So with hip-hop, people expect that. But if you listen to music like country, country is just as graphic and as dark <laughs> as hip-hop or played with banjos and flutes. Um, and there's no one in there. So, so and I'm discussing this as a psychiatrist interested in that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting about um, something I was, I was going to bring up, actually, is that the, the, the content warning stuff is not only about things that might traumatize people. It's about things that, might, that people might feel are offensive on, a, on an identity level. And, you know, so, so use of certain terminology. Um, and that, that might apply to all, all kinds of different social groups. So that's another function of a content warning. And you know, you mentioned hip hop, and of course, there was the, the, the thing in the in the 90s of the parental advisory content warning, Tipagore. And uh, of course, at the time, that was seen as a sort of a right wing thing, and left wing free speech people were up in arms about it. Now it's almost like it's switched, and it's very confusing. But maybe you could talk about that idea of, of contagion as well, because certainly suicide is something that I know is handled very carefully by censors, isn't it? It, it, it is. I mean, the, the, the bridge end suicides are a fascinating example of contagion of idea. You know, this, if, if anyone's not familiar with that, the, the idea was that in, in this small Welsh town, there was suddenly this, this epidemic of, I think, teenage suicides. Now, I, I am on shaky ground if I try to profess any deep understanding of this. I don't. But there was something fascinating and terrifying that happened there, almost, you know, like this, this, this hysterical outbreak among people. Um, that, in turn, gave rise to a lot of um, ideas about how carefully suicide should be reported, mm. which I notice saddeningly, is not always followed by, by many um, things in the media. Um, in terms of... Again, I, I think... this is, Again, it feels like a cop-out answer. The first thing is that, obviously, the context in which something is being portrayed is, is going to matter. So whether that be a fictionalised depiction of something or a hard news report... Mm. The, the second thing would be that dealing with it on a case-by-case -case basis, I suppose, is key. I don't think you can necessarily impose one idea and say everything has to be reported like this. What I would hope is that if something so truly unexpected and horrifying as an outbreak of suicide among teenagers begins to happen, I would love to think that the, those reporting it might take advice from professional guidelines, mm -hmm. from all sorts of 
different organisations before reporting it, I'm realistic enough as an ex-hack to know that that's unlikely <laughs> to take to happen. I would hope again that in terms of fictionalised portrayals, there would be maybe again this idea of a sort of compassionate community building around that might help. But again, it's it's brutal. It's a brutal world, and there aren't any easy answers, sadly. Is someone else over here? Yeah. Hi. Hello. You talked quite a lot about kind of like graphic content, but um, I wanted to ask you about more kind of implicit content because I think that's something that's really hard to to warn about. I'm thinking particularly of something I watched where uh, the main female character there was no mention of sexual violence in what I was watching and and no discussion of it at all but it was very clear that she had been raped and that she was dealing with that and I found that a lot more distressing than if it had been sort of talked about openly how do you create content warnings for that when it's not really content you know yeah very interesting one I mean in a way censorship and content warnings sort of rely on the idea that you know the blunter it is then the more dangerous or damaging it's going to be and we all know that something that gets inside your head in a more subtle way can be much more upsetting but I don't know maybe it's something that you could... well also the the difficulty with something like that is that you never know how something is going to be read yeah. from one uh, one audience member to the next and obviously we all read things through our own experiences so everything is then coloured by what we ourselves have been through and <coughs> you may find I mean, obviously, I don't know the specific example you're talking about, so it may be that it was very, very clear, um, as it often is, um, in which case I have no idea how you warn for that, but kind of agree that it can be, that can be really, really insidious. Um, but there are also the times when, as a creator, you, you write something that, that someone reads in a particular way and they'll say to you, but, you know, what, what about the implication that this character had that experience and you're left thinking, really? <laughs> I, I don't, I didn't realise that I'd implied that or it comes from your own experience and it is there but you haven't spotted it yourself, yeah. which is really difficult because you can't, you can't warn for something that you didn't notice yourself that you didn't know in place. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's tricky. Because then you've got the whole thing of sort of allegory and metaphor working around something on purpose because you don't want to say it directly, but you've also got projection from an audience member who might be seeing something in it because of their own stuff. And the, the limitations of your own self-awareness. Yeah. I know that what we've tried to do, I mean, apart from explicit warnings, is that within the content descriptions, if we feel that there is material that, that could be particularly difficult, that we'll make mention of it in a way that the GFT or film house wouldn't necessarily yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. Yes, because something that deals with an issue, then someone can see, oh, that's that film about this. Whereas, you know, there's lots of content in films that might not be obviously part of the plot, but that feeds in. And yeah, I mean, certainly, I find that I'm infinitely more sensitized to certain things since I had children. And it's not necessarily things to do with children. It's just violence, generally. I have a much more intense, visceral, upset reaction to it. I can't, I can't enjoy it anymore. Not that I was ever really enjoying violence. <laughs> but, you know, I used to watch violent movies, horror movies, with no... almost quite proud of myself for being tough, you know? 
And now it's totally different. Now it's just like, no, I'm not going to like that. And it's, it's not something that... You know, I can't really take issue with the filmmaker for making me feel like that, but I know that my responses are completely conditioned by how differently I feel about just human flesh. <laughs> it's just one of those strange things. Does anyone want to ask a last question? Yes, there's somebody right in the middle there. Could you? Thank you. Hi. Um, it might be a really naive question or ignorant question, but I'm not sure I'm completely clear on what we're talking about when we say triggers. Is it the connection to trauma that makes it a trigger, as opposed to feeling bad? Or what is the kind of, what is the dialogue around that, I guess? Anything at all yeah. can be a trigger. Um, without getting into a massive lecture on relational frame theory, we are... <laughs> we have got time to <laughs> That'd be a test, wouldn't it? I can do that in one minute. Um, you know, we, we are a narrative species. We, we have this gift of language, and through language we can create absolutely any number of arbitrary links between anything at all. Um, and any word can become triggering for something else, any experience, anything at all. It relies on there being a, a stimulus in the here and now, so a word, a particular image, whatever, and a previous prior stimulus with all the other associations, and the two things become indelibly conditioned. And once that happens, it is impossible to erase. You know, we, we can't erase memories. And then, of course, other things become bound up in that, and suddenly you have this whole chain of quite complex language, images, associated smells, different mm. things that can be triggers in any different thing. So that's a, a complex way of saying anything can be a trigger for something something that has happened to somebody. But the, way, the, the ways in which it tends to be used, so for instance in the academic context, there are certain things that will tend to have content warnings, so it'll be things like violence, sexual violence, child abuse maybe. There are other things that tend not to, like you say, car crashes, fire, um, mm. you know. So it's almost like there's a certain fashion for certain things being identified yeah. as, as triggers and other things not. And yet, as we know, you know, a, a particular smell could, yeah. could be very, very triggering. But what you tend to see is, you know, for content warning for violence, content warning for... And also, as the gentleman about said, content warning for racist language or for um, homophobia or things like that. There was someone at the front, if we yeah, can just fit one more person in quickly. Thank you. Just here at the front row. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that there's a book called 13 Reasons Why that's just been made into a series. And the producers of the series sought expert advice before they made the series. The book does not have graphic imagery of suicide at all um, and the experts advised them not to have graphic imagery of suicide but they went ahead and did it anyway um, and there's a lot of kind of anger within the mental health community about that. That's very interesting. It's funny you mention that. I was thinking about that earlier on, that specific programme, because I was reading some of that discussion where it's, it's specifically aimed at young adults and it's a story about a, a, a young woman's suicide and there has been some controversy about what they did with it. That feels like it comes back to your point about the spirit from mm. which that's yeah. coming from. That, that does not feel like a particularly compassionate or healthy way in which mm. to do this. And this definitely doesn't get them off the hook because it may have been a very cynical move, but in regard to that series, I, I did look at um, earlier today, actually, um, they provide on the internet tips for viewing and discussing. 
the mm -hmm. film. Um, and they do say that, look, this is a fictional story. One of the things that jumped out at me, suicide is never a heroic or romantic act. So they've tried. The spirit in which they've mm. attempted that is for another discussion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that feels bolted on. We must draw this to a close now. Thank you all very much for, for being here and for your great questions. And thank you to our panel, Simon and Jen and Richard. Thank you very much.